Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Dan Washburn. Journalist Maria Ressa is no stranger to working under difficult, even intolerable conditions. As the CEO of Rappler, an independent news site in the Philippines, Ressa has braved enormous pressure and even threats to her physical safety to oversee coverage of, among other things, President Rodrigo Duterte's brutal war on drugs. Her journalism has made Ressa something of a global icon for press freedom. Now, Ressa may be facing her biggest challenge yet. On June 15th, she and a colleague were found guilty of, quote, cyber libel, unquote, for a 2012 article alleging that a prominent Filipino businessman had links to illegal drugs and human trafficking. Never mind that the article in question was published months before the law existed. Prosecutors said that the correction of a typo in the piece two years later gave them jurisdiction. Ressa, who didn't write, edit, or supervise the article, faces a fine of $8,000 and up to six years in prison. In today's episode, an Asia Society conversation between Ressa and NPR correspondent Frank Langfitt. It was recorded in late May by our colleagues at Asia Society Northern California. The conversation focused on the declining state of press freedom in the Philippines and the importance of an unfettered press in a functioning democracy. Ressa began by describing her legal situation, again, just a few weeks before the verdict. I guess I've, I've always said that over the last four years, it has been four years since we've come under attack. What we've seen in the Philippines is death by a thousand cuts of our democracy. And uh, it is still unbelievable to me that I am living through this. I'm like Frank, we're the class of 86, so I'm old. I consider myself, maybe Frank doesn't, but I feel I feel like I've lived through so much, but nothing compares to this. Every day I feel like Alice in Wonderland and the Mad Hatter is in charge and I have to keep going through the rabbit hole so I can come out the other side. That's me. Let's take it out of me and then just uh, talk about like uh, the, not just Philippine democracy, but kind of the global landscape. The Philippines, what's happening to the Philippines has been kind of, uh, an example for the rest of the world because it started with information operations with social media platforms that all came out of California, right? Uh, and how they have, for the first time, really put all of the global community on the same communications platform and how information is power. Everything starts from there. I think, you know, Frank, it's like we've known this. It's part of the reason we became journalists. Information is power. But what happens when that information is manipulated? What happens if you can't tell fact from fiction? What happens if you become the target of exponential attacks? These are all new questions before the virus. And now that we have SARS-CoV-2, the context in the Philippines is, is horrific because not only, essentially we have martial law without being called martial law. Uh, all of the conditions for dealing with the pandemic meant, well, this is our ninth week of lockdown. We have checkpoints, we have curfews. Uh, and then on May 5th, when ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster, uh, went black for the first time since 1972. Think about this. The last time that happened, it was followed by 
21 years of a dictatorship. This is the context that we're talking from. Maria, talk a little bit, explain exactly what happened to ABS-CBN and why the government moved against the network and why now? So let's talk, think about ABS-CBN like uh, CBS, whatever is the largest, uh, most popular network in your country. And then all of a sudden, if you're a democratic country, it gets shut down. Um, the reason for it, we and it, this is, didn't happen all the time. I think the erosion of freedoms in the Philippines began with uh, weaponization of social media, followed by weaponization of the law. So the same thing that happened to me and Rappler is, is what happened to ABS-CBN. They just happen to be significantly larger. Uh, the market cap of ABS-CBN is about 300 million U.S. dollars. About 11,000 workers are affected by this. Um, it is, well, here's something very significant. There will also be a business impact of this because since President Duterte took office, since May 2016, ABS-CBN lost 67% of its stock price. Right? So what happened? Almost as soon as he took office, he threatened, President Duterte threatened the largest newspaper, the Philippine Daily Inquirer, filed legal cases against the owners. And then within two weeks, the owners said that they would sell it to a businessman friend of President Duterte. That sale still hasn't happened, right? But since then, President Duterte then went on to attack ABS-CBN. That's early on. And he said that he threatened not to renew the franchise. Well, fast forward now, uh, two, three years later, and here we are. The franchise wasn't renewed. Largely, the delay was in Congress. And then after the franchise officially expired, which would have been May 4th, uh, a small regulatory body, the NTC, came in and gave a cease and desist order to ABS-CBN. Uh, within a few hours, they shut down. Uh, it's very similar to what happened to Rappler, a small regulatory agency, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, tried to shut us down in 2018. So, I mean, in terms of what happened to us, online exponential attacks 2016, by 2017, the same lies, well, let me put, the same attacks came from President Duterte himself in his State of the Nation address in July of 2017. A week later, we got our first subpoena. January 2018, we got uh, uh, an, an order from the SEC telling us that our license had been revoked. We've been fighting it since January 2018, and that was a year where the government filed 11 cases and investigations against us. In 2019, uh, I had to post bail eight times to be able to stay free. I was arrested twice, detained. Um, I paid more in bail and bonds than Imelda Marcos, who's been convicted in four different countries. Right? So it's, it's a similar tactic of using the law to take away rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution and uh, to add a veneer of legality. So ABS-CBN now is dark. Uh, just yesterday, Congress, the Speaker of the House, said that he would not, he di they didn't want to renew the franchise immediately. What they did is to come up with a provisional franchise, and this is a bill that is now making its way through Congress, uh, extending the franchise until October, five months. That, again, is a Damocles sword. If that were to go through, okay, ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster, has a franchise, can operate for five months, right? Then we go through this whole thing all over again. 
are they able to broadcast at all, say on Facebook or other platforms? And do they have any legal recourse here? Yes, they can. And the propaganda machine, uh, I call it the propaganda machine. Uh, it is uh, the disinformation networks that are supported by and run by some government officials. Uh, these networks have been in, in full force over the weekend, actually rivals the peak of when they were attacking Rappler in 2016. Uh, it is more vicious, these attacks online. And the narrative that they're pushing out on on social media is that, well, it's not really a death of press freedom. It is, you know, they're still free to broadcast. This is death by a thousand cuts, right? That's, it doesn't matter if they're free to broadcast uh, ABS-CBN's franchise. It, it's clearly uh, been withheld because of political purposes, but the double speak around it has allowed, uh, has allowed this to happen. Um, what, are, what are their legal recourse? They went and sent, uh, they have filed at the Supreme Court, which is largely dominated now by Duterte appointees. I think there are only three Supreme Court justices who, aren't, who haven't been appointed by President Duterte. So they filed a, 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 an appeal at the Supreme Court hoping that it would take away the NTC move. Um, but truly, that could take a long time. So aside from the the Supreme Court itself. We, by the way, along with other journalists and and uh, and academics, have filed a case at the Supreme Court that it would be more than a year now uh, because we've been banned from coverage at uh, anywhere President Duterte is. And then just yesterday, our reporter was kicked out of a, a chat group that the Philippine National Police has. So these, again, death by a thousand cuts, right? Well, how do viewers feel? And they must have a large viewership, but are they responding? And is there any role for the public to try to put pressure on the government? I think that's, yes, uh, they are responding. Uh, but again, uh, they're met by a very organized and, uh, and, uh, and large propaganda machine online. Uh, Frank, you know this, but, you know, the Philippines, I think this is the fifth year running where the Philippines, the country that spends the most time on social media. We're number one, five, five years in a row. This is according to Hootsuite, and we are social. Uh, we're also number one in terms of the amount of time we spend on the internet, even though it's slow, but we spend a lot of time. Number one globally. So Facebook, 100% of Filipinos on the internet, you're talking about 110 million people, more than 70% have internet. So 100% of the people on the internet are on Facebook. So Facebook really is our internet. And as of three years ago, when we did a map of our information ecosystem on Facebook, the center of that, the center that dictates public discourse, that was dominated by the disinformation networks. And all of the traditional news groups were pushed to the periphery because we had not collaborated with each other, right? So this is, this is a problem that we've been trying to deal with since 2016. And in your dealings with Facebook, I mean, let me, let me ask you this too. We, I remember we saw each other in reunions a few years ago. And I remember that you were doing a lot of Facebook Lives. You were talking a lot about the value of big data. And you saw Facebook is very, very valuable to Rappler. When did you begin to see that change and see that, that Facebook actually could be used to attack you? And then what have your conversations been like 
with Facebook, and do you see any progress there? Wow. Uh, so I know the best and the worst of what social media platform like Facebook can do, right? I mean, I always say I drank the Kool-Aid. Rappler was created for social networks. That was the idea. We wanted to see how information cascades on social networks. And what are social networks? There are family and friends. What's social media? There are family and friends on steroids, right? It's, it's, uh, it's extremely empowering and enabling at the beginning for Rappler. Uh, in a year and a half, we became the third top online news site just behind the, the major two television networks in the Philippines. Um, so we were, Rappler couldn't have grown without Facebook. We were essentially alpha partners here in the Philippines. We knew Facebook better than the people who, create, who started Facebook, who came to the Philippines after we were already using it well. Uh, but we were also the first to be attacked and the first to sound the alarm about Facebook's role, about these cheap armies on social media and how they could roll back democracy, not just in the Philippines, but in, in many countries around the world. Our first story on that, on Facebook's algorithms, that was in 2016, right? So, and, what, and the attacks were new. Frank, we talked about this. Imagine in 2016, uh, we just did a story showing how social media was being used to attack narratives they didn't like. And because we did a three-part series on what we started calling the propaganda machine, uh, I received an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour. And one of the ways we dealt with it was to create a database. We called it the Shark Tank. We worked with Facebook on this to kind of sound the alarm. I don't think they really believed it. <laughs> and that's 2016 until 2018 when Mark Zuckerberg gets called to Congress, right? Uh, so in, in 2016, we saw this. Once that, those attacks happened, it wasn't just happening to me. The first targets of the attacks were anyone who questioned the drug war. And that's normal people. Then after that came the journalists, the activists, opposition politicians. Uh, and these attacks are very personal. You know, it, it, when I was with CNN, I could hide behind the network. You know, you didn't have to. The age of social media really stripped journalists and uh, made us vulnerable. And those were some of the appeals I made early on to Facebook. You know, the Constitution guarantees protections for me as a journalist because we challenge power. And these platforms have stripped those protections. And they're like, well, you're a public figure. Uh, I think there's a difference between a politician and a journalist, but, you know, go figure. Anyway, come 2018, when Mark Zuckerberg gets called to Congress, all of a sudden, everyone is speaking up. Uh, oh, one last point. Uh, our data also showed that women were attacked at least 10 times more than men in 2016. Right? So we have to crunch all this data. We have more than a terabyte going through. Um, how, how do we deal with Facebook today? Well, well, Facebook has done three takedowns in the Philippines, October 2018, January 2019, March 2019. And the policy is CIB, Coordinated Inauthentic Behavior, right? Coordinated and Inauthentic. The Philippines, they have always included us as a footnote in a lot of their, the reports they have to do because this is a country where they were dealing with more than the average of fake accounts, we don't need to rely on bots. Labor is cheap in our country. So fake accounts. 
So those three, three takedowns were a lot of fake accounts. But then what happens with the good information operations? Remember, this is a military tactic, right? Uh, it's part of the Russian military doctrine, for example. Influence operations or information operations, the first is could be inauthentic. Let's think about it like a virus since this is that time. You introduce the virus, but then at some point that begins to infect everyone, the ecosystem. What happens when they're real people who believe the propaganda? And that's kind of what, what Facebook is dealing with now. And I think they're in the process of trying to come up with new policies. Here's the silver lining. With COVID-19, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they have begun to take their gatekeeping role seriously, finally, right? They are realizing that lies in this day and age can kill. And so they are taking down content powers that they have never, you know, they've taken a long time to use. Uh, and in these takedowns, people like Bolsonaro of Brazil, of Rudy Giuliani, they've been taken down. Um, and what I hope is that the journal, we should continue to push Facebook, YouTube, Google, to move it, not just to the disinformation of COVID-19, but to political disinformation. Because these lies, these attacks on journalists, they're debilitating and they have real world impact. I think part of the reason these legal cases have, have flourished. Uh, why people can even believe it in the Philippines is because the social media attacks have acted like fertilizer. They have changed the way people view journalists, Rappler, and me. We're going to take a short break here to direct your attention to Asia Society's global calendar of online-only programs. In the coming weeks, our locations across the world will be presenting a wide range of events on policy, current affairs, and the arts of Asia and beyond. All of these are available to anyone with an internet connection. To find out more, check out asiasociety.org online. And now, let's get back to Maria Ressa and Frank Langford. I had always thought at the beginning of the year in January 2020, I, I thought 2020 was the year that we will deal with these, uh, with the, the tech, with technology, finding regulations that could be global. I think that, you know, what we're, of course, then COVID-19 happened, right? How do we push this forward? I think because they are dealing with this, the social media platforms are finally realizing the kind of power they have. And if we can equate political disinformation with what they're doing with COVID-19, then they've already opened the door, right? So that's the first. I think the second one is we have to look at two things, the design of social media platforms and then the kinds of incentives social media platforms have to actually protect its users. Uh, I'll start with the second one. Right now, social media platforms don't have really any incentive to protect its users because take a look at Facebook in the last quarter when in the quarter where they said that they spent more money for data privacy to protect users, uh, they were pummeled by the market. They lost uh, value. Uh, so how do we align the incentives, the economic incentives, with 
protecting the people that give value to these networks, right? That's one. And then the second part is protecting the public sphere of democracy. Uh, Starting in 2017, November 2017, Freedom House came out with the first study that said in at least 27 or 28 countries around the world, these cheap armies were rolling back democracy. The next year, Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Research Project moved that number to 48. And then the year after that, that was last year, that number is at like 79. So democracies around the world are being eroded. Let's go back to the first point. How do you regulate it? This is something that uh, governments all around the world are starting to grapple with. Great Britain was actually one of the first ones to have a global uh, uh, view. Um, Damien Collins's reports have been really great in terms of, of showing the impact globally and how it has been used domestically in each country for more power, right? So if at the beginning it was an enabler for normal people, as governments caught up and figured out how to use it, they had far more resources to throw in. And by 2014, the first example we have is Russian disinformation in the Ukraine, in Crimea, right? So, so from there, uh, all of this has happened. Um, how do we deal with this? What regulation? Uh, there, I think one of the first, actually, I'll shut up because I've been talking a while there. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, I, I want to hear So. I have one idea, and this was something we were percolating. I was talking with Sinan Aral at MIT, who is uh, about to come out with a book. Uh, his book is, oh my gosh, I can't remember the title of it, but this book is interesting because he has both engineering background, policy, and, uh, and he, he said that it is really built into the social networks, this kind of polarization. People will say Eli Pariser's filter bubbles are real. That's wrong. The filter bubbles are built in, right? Because if you think about it, one decision, uh, which is to grow the networks by using the idea of friends of friends, friends of friends, by using friends of friends to grow that network, you've actually designed polarity into the social media platform. And that's based on the work of a Princeton a Princeton study called The Strength of Weak Ties by Mark Granovetter. So think about it like this. In the Philippines, and you can think U.S. or Britain, but in the Philippines, we were all in the center here. And then what happened was because of the way the design was, if I was pro-Duterte, I would move further here because I would do friends of friends. So I wouldn't see as much of this as I would of pro-Duterte. That would radicalize me further to here. In the meantime, on the other side, if I'm anti-Duterte, I would be moved further here. Now, think about this as left and right in the U.S. And instead of actually having a public sphere where we agree on facts, you are now this far apart and the facts are debatable. So that's built into the design. How do you fix that? You know, these are some of the things I think we need to grapple with. In terms of legislation, an easy one is to actually empower the user uh, we create our own data for, for Facebook, for YouTube, for, for Twitter. What if we can own that? And if we don't feel protected, we can leave with our data and move to Jimmy Wales's new platform. So that would kind of get rid of scale issues, right? Because if enough people are unhappy, we can then go to Jimmy Wales's new social media platform and scale that. 
right? So there's lots of different things, but this okay. is this. There's a lot of things. I think we need to think about the the information dystopia. How to fix the information ecosystem? We need to think about this like it was post World War II, like an atom bomb has gone off, and that we need to somehow protect humanity from the worst of what humanity can do. That's the kind of emergency mentality we need to have to fix that. And then, of course, what happens with COVID nineteen? Right? It it's now put that in the back seat. Speaking about the coronavirus, one of the things we've been talking about at, at NPR on the international desk, we are meeting every day, um, which we've never done before, on and able to talk all correspondents around the world. And one of the things we're thinking about is, in the end, whenever the world gets through this, you're going to see, as you already have to some degree, which countries do well and which countries don't. And certainly here in the United Kingdom, it was very difficult when the UK passed Italy to become the highest death rate in all of Europe. And what I'm wondering is, in terms of holding people account, particularly populists who may not be as detail-oriented, perhaps a Duterte, perhaps a Boris Johnson, is there an opportunity, are you seeing an opportunity for journalists and the public to hold some of these, some people with more authoritarian tendencies, more sort of negative right-wing populist tendencies, um, hold them to account? I think in the Philippines, that's precisely what we have to do, and we keep trying to hold the line, right? But the problem with this now, of course, is that uh, in a lockdown situation, civic engagement, for example, the shutdown of ABS-CBN, if that had happened during normal times, there would be protests in the streets. ABS-CBN has the Philippines' largest stars, right? Um, so that would have happened, and that would be something the government would have to deal with. Without protests, how do you do that? There are some bright spots online. Um, the social media, the disinformation networks of the government didn't quite know what to do when real people came in and began to fight back online. And we saw this on Twitter in on April 1, of all things, April Fool's. On April 1, President Duterte gave a, like, a midnight rambling talk where he told the law enforcement, the military and police, that if anyone violated quarantine, that they should, and this is a direct quote, shoot them dead. That night, Filipinos online were outraged. And it, it was the first time we saw a hashtag trend number one in the Philippines and then trend globally that I would have thought would be un unthinkable, which is hashtag Aus Duterte now. So that trended. When ABS-CBN shut down, uh, double the number trended to number one. But do these online behaviors, these online protests, do they work? It's unclear right now. It's certainly asymmetric power, right? Because who's out in the streets enforcing our lockdown? It's police in military uniform. You know, having said that, I think, what can we do? I, I think the first step is, is realizing that freedom of the press is the foundation of every other right we have. And if we lose that, then we're definitely not just, we're no longer a democracy, this is like a death knell for me, right? We're now, we now definitely stepped into authoritarian um, uh, context in the Philippines. Are we moving towards a dictatorship? The seeds are in place. In, in a country like Great Britain and the United States, uh, 
you guys are you are still a democracy. But you know what's interesting to me is that uh, it's the difference between disinformation and misinformation. So something very simple to be politically correct in the U.S. People refer to these lies on social media as misinformation. But we know the Mueller report lays it out that Russian disinformation has been yes. So why are we not calling it out? Right? We, as in you, why are you not calling it out? Right? Why are you not doing something about it? You are being manipulated. And these networks gain more power over time unless the social media platforms deactivate them. Do you think that people will be able to spin their way out of big death tolls? Particularly, I'm thinking about populists. Here in the United Kingdom, what we're seeing is fascinating. And I've been watching Prime Minister's questions. There's a new labor leader, uh, Keir Starmer. He's a former prosecutor. For the last two weeks, he has taken apart Boris Johnson. And it's a very different Boris Johnson in an empty House of Commons who doesn't have people to cheer him on. It's fascinating to watch. And in watching, what's been interesting to watch this labor leader um, is he is bit by bit taking the information, taking the numbers, and basically taking the government apart quite quite effectively. And what I'm wondering is, is there an opportunity for that? And also one of the kind of the conflicts we've seen in this is between expertise, which has been denigrated by populists for the last few years. Michael Gove here, one of the cabinet members uh, said it just before the Brexit vote, we've had enough of experts. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you, is there an opportunity? Do you think that expertise is going to be valued more given that we're in a scientific crisis and the stakes couldn't be higher? Uh, last first, yes, uh, that's a silver lining. We go back to the age of experts because that's that's truly critical. I think the second thing is governments are accountable now. They must, and there's clear impact if they don't act competently, right? There, uh, and this is where I think we can hold them to account. But the to your first question, you know what we've seen in China the questions about the data in the Philippines because there's conflicting numbers. Well, they just change the numbers, right? Can you do that as easily in democracies like, like yours, like the United States? I, I don't think so. But then again, how reliable are the numbers depending on how many have been tested? Uh, if you look at the Philippines, when we came under lockdown, only 12 Filipinos for every million Filipinos had been tested right? 12. Today, that number is at like, it's 1,722. The total number of tests done in the Philippines for 110 million people is less than 190,000. So do we really know what the disease is doing? Uh, instead of focusing on the security, perhaps the government is just anticipating that they're not going to be able to control the hunger and the, and the virus, so they've moved directly to security. But security should be the last measure. The first one should be focus on the public health emergency, right? And then after that, uh, get food to the people. That'll do it for this week's conversation. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out our past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org podcast. We want to wish our listeners, wherever you are, to stay safe and well during these challenging times. I'm Dan Washburn. See you next time.